This is Primal Screen, a weekly radio show airing Monday evenings on Triple R. Primal Screen is about movies, from the ones on the big screen to the ones you stream. Hope you enjoy the podcast version and feel free to get in touch via the Primal Screen Facebook page or the Triple R website. And welcome to Primal Screen, a triple R film criticism show and podcast. I'm Sally Christie and I will be your host. Joining me in the virtual studio is the wonderful Flick Ford. How are you, Flick? I'm good, Sal. How are you doing? I'm good. And we're also joined by our long-lost comrade, Emma Westwood. (laughs) How are you, Emma? I'm so pleased to be here in this cinematic cesspool that you call the screen. The screen. I've got to emphasise that. I still want to call it primal screen. It's hard, isn't it? Yeah, I'm from a certain generation. so it's hard. (laughs) I I, I, I struggle with that too. Um, (laughs) We are stepping back to the golden age of Hollywood in David Fincher's highly anticipated Mank. And we are also going to be discussing the dystopian sci-fi, The Trouble with Being Born. Earlier this year, The Trouble with Being Born gained notoriety after being removed from MIF's program for its controversial content. However, it's now getting a limited cinema release, and Emma was fortunate enough to interview the film's director, Sandra Wallner. So we have that interview coming up very soon. But before we get to that, let's have a look at this week's news. In this week's news, we said goodbye to an Australian cinema icon, Hugh Keysburn, who passed away at the age of 73. Keysburn was known, uh, most known for his role as Toe Cutter in the original Mad Max and as a Morton Joe in 2015's Mad Max Fury Road. He also starred in numerous other Aussie classics such as Stone, one of my Christmas viewing films every year. Don't ask why, but it is. <laughs> Christmas like that. In my house. That tells so much about you, Sal. <laughs> I have I have friends, Sal, who watch Zulu every Christmas. So I don't know what that says about them either. I'm a tradition stone. Um, he was also in The Man from Hong Kong and Mad Dog Morgan, to name just a few. He had a really long um, and amazing career. And I think his last role was as a Morton Joe in Fury Road. Is that right? I know Flick, yeah. you're a Mad Max fan. I love, yeah, I was really devastated. I actually was kind of touched that so many friends got in contact um, with me when they heard the news. So I woke up to a lot of, um, yeah, text messages. Actually, a friend of mine, Chris Dyett, wrote an amazing um, piece um, in the Jacobin um, magazine about um, about Keysburn, but also about his involvement in unions. And, um, yeah, mm-hmm. he's pretty amazing, actually. Just a really, like, really uh, politically engaged man and, um yeah, just, I don't know, so key in my my childhood yeah. of watching him as Toe Cutter and then obviously Morton Joe, but also and lots of other roles. He had, as a Morton Joe, such 
an incredible presence and just yeah. to think that that was his last role like what a phenomenal role um I also wanted to mention um the passing of Italian actor and screenwriter Daria Nicolodi who died on the 26th of November at the age of 70 um Nicolodi starred in so many Italian greats such as Deep Red which is my favorite role of hers and Tenebrae which is our theme music here on the show she was also responsible for writing one of the most famous horror films ever which is Dario Gento Suspiria. Um, her impact on cinema was massive, to say the least. Um, Emma, I know that you're a fan. What was I your know. of Dario's? Well, there's so many. I do love her role in Phenomena oh, yes. slash Creepers, depending on what release you see. Um, but she was someone who, I mean, just she would go from playing, um, whether it was the villain and usually an incredibly maniacal villain, or whether it was just like a, a central lead character, like she did in Deep Red, um, which was, I grew up on a version of Deep Red that um, was really sliced and diced here on VHS in Australia. And um, it wasn't strangely, it didn't have the violence taken out of it. It had all these comedy sequences with that, her. And the, my favorite thing about Deep I Red, know. especially that th- the, the scene in the car where yes. David Hemmings' uh, seat is yeah. down so much lower and she's up so much higher than him. It's just incredible. He falls down yeah. and it's like, like it was quite physical comedy and she yeah. did pull that off really well. But um, also, you know, a lot of people will recognize her from on the screen in telling uh, uh, tell you horror movies but like you said Sal she was um, a writer and she was just sort of in the way that I think um, or even more officially than someone like Alma um, Hitchcock um, partnered with Alfred Hitchcock she was as seminal in crafting the Dario Argento vision so Mm. mother of Asia Argento as well um, and incredible woman you know so sad to see her go yeah it really is um in more upbeat news we have opening in Melbourne this week that I'm very excited about, the brand spanking new Palace Cinema, which is opening at Pentridge. This oh, yes. is um, going to be my new local cinema and they've got a really incredible, fantastic open air program that's happening all throughout the summer. So, yeah, I'm super excited about that one and looking forward to getting down to support them. So um, before we look, we do our first review, we've got a very special treat for you all. Emma recently chatted with The Trouble With Being Born's director, Sandra Wollner, um, and surprisingly, The Trouble With Being Born is only her second feature, uh, her first being, um, oh, my God, what are the, um, the, the impossible, impossible picture? I'm yeah. just, I've got it written down and I was like, that sounds wrong to me, the impossible <laughs> picture that was released in 2016. So um, without further ado, let's hear Emma's chat with Sandra. All right, Sandra, thank you so much for joining us here on Primal Screen on Triple R in Melbourne. And we all films just being released here. And uh, I want to congratulate you, first of all, on what I think is a truly elegant and philosophical and smart and provocative and chilling film. Uh, you've managed to do the whole package. It's only your second film, so it's remarkable how mature and accomplished it is. Uh, that's a credit to you. And as both co-writer and director, um, I'd be really interested in knowing how you came to this idea. Um, so can you tell us a little bit about the inception of the project? 
In the beginning, I was searching for a non-human perspective. And when my co-author and very good friend, uh, Roderick Warich, came up uh, with the idea of, of this android in, uh, in this setting, I found it the perfect vessel I was searching for, you know. Usually the genre narrative we, we know about from uh, AI, films about AI, it's either the AI wants to conquer the world or it wants to become human. And I was very much interested in the idea of this AI being a mirror more than anything else, being a mirror for its owners, being, let's say, an anti-Pinocchio story. Mm. The, you know, the, the piece of wood that does not have a soul, that does not want anything, but only what it's programmed to want. Mm. And it also does not care about what it, what it wants, what that is, that I found, uh, interesting and uh, quite of course uh, painful also to watch it harms us as an audience if if the object does not care about whether it is used for whatever you know so i'm guessing you realized from the outset that the content in the trouble with being born was going to be controversial so were there any concessions you made when you were making the film to sort of tone down that controversiality mm. I mean, you know, every every sexual aspect uh, that we show in this film was created in post-production. I, I mm -hmm. think that's very important to say in the beginning, you know. Um, the film that we shot on set was actually quite harmless, you know. Um, like we worked with a, with an actress, with a young actress, with uh, Lena Watson, which is obviously a stage name. And uh, she's a very talented young actress with a great family in uh, with a great family and that's something which is really important uh, important if you're working with kids anyhow you know you need the family you need the support of the family and you need uh, to talk openly about what it is about and I really have the feeling we were just so lucky that we found not only her but found them and uh, of course we talked in a child appropriate way about what this film will be about you know about the dangerous relationship between the man and this mm -hmm. robot and though i'm not i'm i'm really sure that you cannot shoot this film with every kid i mean you know uh it is a really lena is, lena watson is a very talented mature kid with a a good family uh with a yeah with a healthy coming from a healthy family and I really think that you need you need that if you want to sh to shoot a film like this you know even the film itself was as I said quite harmless and as I said we created this relationship between the man and the robot completely in the editing and the post-production so of course she knew what we were talking about but she never experienced um, like anything on set that we were talking about, mm, you know. Okay. The scenes we shot had a completely different mood, of course. Uh, she was, of course, never naked or saw anyone naked on set. Uh, she wore a silicone mask um, to resemble the ghost of the daughter and to look more like an android, but also to protect her identity, you know. Mm -hmm. So you would never recognize her in real life. And, yeah, just to make, like, really one thing sure... I mean, I know and I accept that this film might shock an audience, but I really would never allow that to happen to one of my actors. And I think yeah. that's the main 
that's yeah that's the main safety measurements we took yeah fair enough no that makes that absolutely makes sense it's interesting though you talk about lena being a um you know a, a really good actress herself for someone so young so what was what would you say in casting her in that role what does she get from it because it's not like she can get a claim or she's going to be standing up at festivals mm. i'm guessing and taking awards or mm. things like that so what is the payoff for her I mean, that's a really good question, you know. Um, but the thing was, the family, uh, the whole family saw my last film and they really liked it. And I think they understood what kind of film I I want to create with The Trouble with Being Born. And they really wanted to be part of it. And also she really wanted to be part of it. And she knew ahead that she was not going um, into this film, that she would be that she would not be recognizable. And so she picked the stage name by herself. Oh, did she? she Is it Emily Watson that she took the name from? Yeah, or Emma Watson. Maybe so, sorry, more. Emma Watson. There's Emily Watson as well. I'm showing my age there. Yeah, I go yeah. for the older one. <laughs> no, but it's, it's uh, of course, yeah. Um, yeah, so she picked it herself. She really, you know, I had the feeling, again, I don't think that, that you could do this film with every kid, but she was so mature about it and she really wanted to act and step into this role. You know, she wore the silicone mask. We had a movement coordinator um, working with her as well. So she really created this role and she just really wanted to act. And yeah, I find that still quite amazing and mature and yeah. Incredible. Not, yeah. Her, that yeah. that that mask was just super creepy. Uh, there was something about it. I think it was just enough artificiality and reality um, that at different times it was kind of quite off-putting, you know. So what was was it really quite a thin mask, or um, was it um, silicon? You said it was, yeah. Yeah, it's silicon and. Uh... I mean, the the mask was uh, was shaped after another actress, after Jana McKinnon. Um, she was the the she played the older version of the yes. daughter. Um, okay. And uh, sort of the uh, yeah the mask was shaped after her, and it was not that thin. Of course, it had to um, because you really could not recognize Lena behind that mask. You would not, like you never ever, if you would meet her on the street, um, would recognize wow. the real Lena Watson behind the mask, which was in a few ways important. Uh, one was just because of the story, because she needed to resemble this other uh, actress, this other character. On the other hand, we really needed that uncanny look so we needed it to be super artificial and to um yeah to look as much non-human as we could get and on the other hand of course uh, it's also a protection measurement to um let uh, yeah lena incognito in yeah, a way yeah yeah you were talking about your first film the impossible picture so that's um the film previous to the trouble with being being born. Now, I don't want to disclose any spoilers um, with the trouble with being born because I think the film does really unfold in this beautiful way. And, it, you know, you only really get a true sense of everything that's going on at the completion of the film. 
and it's really thematically dense though. There's a lot in there. I think that it was very pointed, the storytelling, but you've got a lot of themes happening. And one of the themes that I thought was quite intriguing and extraordinary in the way you presented it was this idea of memory. And that was something that you looked at in the impossible picture as well. So is this something that specifically interests you? And if so, why? Yes, uh, definitely. I mean, I think that the way memories and ideas or imaginations are in a way superimposed uh, on one another is something I was really interested in also, also already in my last film. I do think that uh, in this sense, memory is uh, the narrative that provides meaning and identity for us as human beings. And without it, we probably would uh, sink in a meaningless chaos. And uh, so everything has a beginning and everything has an end. We need this narration, yeah? the myth of, uh, of self-fulfillment, uh, which after all is uh, also dominant in cinema, if you think about it. And in opposition to that um, is the fundamental endlessness of a machine's existence, mm. which I find so interesting because uh, with its narration, it can be immediately comprehended. And I really find that uh, fascinating. So, yeah, uh, I do believe it's, it's, it's a core or one core question of human nature. And uh, for me in this film, it was very much about how do, does human memory resemble programming or a programming or is there any similarity between that mm, wonderful is it frustrating for you though Sandra for you know certain viewers just not being able to see beyond the controversy is that something like is there something there will be people who are listening to this for example who will think you know, say that this is a film that normalises paedophilia. That has been a complaint that's been made against this, your film. So what would you say to those people? And um, have there um, been any responses, would you say, that have surprised you or you found particularly hurtful? Uh, well, I honestly did not, uh, did not think that we would leave the bubble of, of the festivals, you know. That this would be, um, in a way, perceived as anything else than, than let's say, an art house film or an art understanding. Um, it's usually people who have not seen the film who are, who complain, you know. And I think it's because they are scared and angry and jump to conclusions without ever taking the trouble to investigate further. And this is something that is quite, uh, I think it's a, it's a sign of our time also, because people have to react very quickly to, um, to show on which side they are on. You know? mm, that's a good point. And, uh, I think they are, so they are afraid to be misunderstood and, uh, yeah. So, but of course, I mean, I don't even know how one, who has seen the film really would think that this film uh, normalizes pedophilia. I, I don't, I, I really would not understand that. So yeah. Mm -mm. Uh, but what I, 
understand is that a lot of people do already have the problem with that I'm all that this film is depicting this uh, this theme, you know, mm. that they already that they already are scared um, just by depicting something, and that already this should be forbidden. And I really see that a little problematic because uh, I really do believe that it is the responsibility of art also to show us the abyss of human nature. You know, it is just, uh, yeah, it's the core of art also to show all the best humans bring out, but also to show those things where we don't want to go, but are still there. I 100% agree with you. I think that there's often a misconception that uh, what filmmakers show is something they condone. Um, but often uh, filmmakers or artists of any type can show show subject matter that's, you know, abhorrent and by, but it's stuff that exists. So without, we need to talk about stuff. Otherwise it does go underground. Yeah. And I mean, to really, to make a very bold uh, comparison, like if we really believe that, how can we ever read or have like the old testament still out there you know yes it's, uh, it's very mean, gory <laughs> if depicting is already the issue you would have to forbid it and uh, yeah that i found just interesting yeah yeah well i read actually an excellent article by Alison taylor in the conversation the conversation's a, a um online publication in australia that basically has academics talking about different subjects and she used your film, The Trouble with Being Born, um, to talk about how films can be unfairly reduced into clickbait descriptions and, you know, like child sex robot movie. And it's interesting that you talk about this film being not seeing it going beyond the festival circuit because, and it being sitting as an art house film because child sex robot movie doesn't sound like something that you would attribute to an art house film. So when you're at a party, for example, and you're talking to someone about your film, what do you say? What do you say you've made? What is your film about? Like, what's the short way of describing it? I mean, the shortest way of describing this is, is really, I see it as an anti-Pinocchio story. It's the story of a machine that does not want anything but what it is programmed to want, and it does not care what this is, you know. That's the my short synopsis um, of that. And that's a beautiful synopsis. Thanks so much, Sandra. I really appreciate talking with you. Yeah, thank you so much for taking the time. Triple R on FM, digital, online and via the app. You're listening to Primal Screen on 3RRR with Flick Ford, Emma Westwood and myself, Sally Christie. So without further ado, we will get into the trouble with being born. Um, so Ali is an android who lives with a man that she calls her father. Together they drift through the summer and she shares memories and anything else that he programs her to recall. Memories that mean everything to him but nothing to her. However, one night she sets off into the woods. Um, Emma, seen as, you know, <laughs> you, I know that you watched this one a little while ago, but I think it is one that does leave a bit of an impact. What are your thoughts on the trouble with being born? 
It does. It's it's a very high impact film, but it's a high impact film in a very quiet manner, mm-hmm. I would say. And because um, there's so much controversy that have sur- has surrounded this film in terms of its subject matter, and um, there's been people saying things like um, what we discussed in this interview, uh, Sandra and I, about this um, normalising paedophilia and things like that. Um, it, it just goes to show, I think, that how a film can be reduced into a, a catchphrase or a, a seed of an idea and that it can totally misrepresent a film. Um, I certainly didn't get an impression that this normalises paedophilia in any way. I'm not sure about you guys. I'll let you chime in. Uh, but more than anything, um, I don't think it was about that. I think it was about this idea of an artificial intelligence, an android android being, and um, uh, who is called Ellie, but she doesn't stay Ellie. In fact, I would be tempted, if I was writing about this, I would be tempted to call the character it rather than mm. assign gender or rather than assign a neutral pronoun because she's not a human being. And I think that misrepresentation of her it as a human is where the where the controversy comes and where it's actually uh, the meaning of the film or the meaning of the character is skewed as well. Because everything, the amazing thing about this character is that any human qualities that it has are memories of, uh, from someone else or the trauma that someone else experiences. But it's a really interesting, ethical, philosophical, existential um, script, basically, because you are, you know, thinking what makes a person um, because she doesn't, it doesn't have, see, I want to say she, but it does, it, it, do, it is misleading to say that. It, it is not a person. It is what it is mimicking or it's taking on someone else's um, someone else's memory. So I, I also don't want to say too much about that because I feel that it is actually a film that has some really interesting reveals about it. And it's also a film that um, when you, you know, uh, I've seen things talk about it as the android uh, child sex movie, um, that sort of sounds like exploitation cinema. It's yeah. not exploitation cinema. Oh, it's so, so completely far removed from exploitation cinema. <laughs> it is. Yeah. That's why I feel that people, if you, you know, you talk about this film in that way, people are going to go in, the wrong crowd's going to go and see it. You're not going to. It's good. It will bore you, actually, if you're yes. going in to yep. see an exploitation film. Mm-hmm. It's a very still, lovely, lonely, artistic movie. Mm. I really. get so frustrated, and I know we've spoken so much on Primal Screen with Miff's decision to, to pull the film. Um, and so, you know, I suppose it's kind of regurgitating some of the stuff we've already talked about, but I find it so frustrating when representation is seen as endorsement or, or presented as I endorsement. Agree. Absolutely. And it made me think of some of my favourite films actually, like Nicole Cassell's The Woodsman with Kevin Bacon as a sex offender and child, you know, he's a he's a pedophile. Um, Todd Salon's Happiness. Mm-hmm. They both deal with pedophilia. They are in no way an endorsement, if anything. Um, they are an incredibly uncomfortable watch and a really meaningful engagement with with these issues that, you know, you can't just like block it. You can't censor 
these issues and pretend they don't exist. Um, and it's also like I think that um, the trouble with being born doesn't actually focus that much on pedophilia at all. It's like a tiny, there'll be moments of this throughout the film. So if you're thinking it's going to be this, you know, two hour, it's actually only, what is it, an hour and a half, hour and a half of dealing with pedophilia, it's not. <laughs> I no. think it's really important for people going into this film to know that this is a really small part of the film. Um, significant but small. Yeah, sorry, Emma, I feel like I cut you off then. No, yeah. no, I, I, and, and I totally agree. You put that really beautifully, Flick, because I do think that, you know, presenting of uncomfortable material, but this presents uncomfortable material in a way that works with the way that cinema works so well. It allows people to fill the blanks and mm -hmm. often people will go to the extremes further than what anyone, what any filmmaker can show them. Uh, but, you know, cinema, well, I feel that art's role is to shine a light on really uncomfortable things and not uh, that it's very easy for us in our everyday lives to want to not talk about or to hide, mm. but um, to show them and to present through art to get people thinking about things is to not bury them because as soon as stuff is buried, that's when it's allowed to go rife, you know. Mm. Um, when we don't talk about things, that's when the trouble actually occurs. Mm. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And I saw, I was reading, in, just before we came on air tonight actually, I was reading an article about... Um, new film that is currently in production in Geelong, I think, about the um the Port Arthur massacre. Oh yeah. Um yeah. and yeah, the same thing saying where do we draw the line with this? We can, you know, uh we've got all these movies about Hitler, but we can't make a film about um an incident that has occurred 25 years ago. And obviously it's traumatic and it's painful. Um and it's always going to be that, but isn't that isn't this a chance for us to have a conversation about mm. yeah uncomfortable things and I and, completely yeah. agree that is the the point of art yeah and this idea that it would necessarily be entertaining it's it's this idea it's really it's really reducing mm. cinema to one thing when it's so much more than that um which I think we can kind of all agree on but um yeah. yeah Emma I was so excited to see this film so it was wonderful to hear your interview with Sandra um oh thanks yeah, Blake. it really was and I think she's such a fantastic an interesting director and it's made me want to go and go back and watch her first film, which I haven't yet seen. Um, yeah, this film really stuck with me. I kind of had a bit of hesitation to watch it because I knew that it was going to be quite heavy or I thought it was going to be quite heavy. Um, it is, and I think just the opening scene for me uh, was just pure cinematic joy for yes, me. I beautiful. love the, yeah, the pixelation and this difficulty in working out what's even going on and this um, weird kind of discordant electronic sounds I just loved the opening scene and there's moments where that returns to that and I suppose what really um kind of resonated with me the most is this film even though there's so much talk about um the relationship between uh this man and um this AI um I think that really I think that really what it got to is this sense of um ambiguous loss and I was I was kind of reading about this uh, sorry listening to about this in a podcast um all in the mind it was talking a lot about this and where it's just like loss that occurs without closure and uh, or a clear understanding of why that why something happened and so the person is constantly searching for answers and it complicates and, and delays the process of grieving and that really stuck with me and I think that is really at the core of this film this this mm. kind of sense of the repetition of grief when it's when it's unresolved. Yeah, good the fact that, observation. Yeah, yeah and the, the fact that this mm. AI is actually a projection of people's grief and memory means that she's kind of or it is is kind of this perfect 
object in which the grief is allowed a space, a vessel. Um, and I just really, it really stuck, struck me. Um, my partner actually made a really interesting observation when we were watching it. He was saying that the temporal dislocation really reminded him of um, Happy as Lazaro, the film uh, I think came out last year. Alice yeah, that was a great film. Yeah. That was a real surprise, that film. Yeah, yeah, one of my favourites. And I think that that sense of like you think there's a huge time difference between these two halves of the film, but actually they're set in the same time, it's, a, it's an economic divide. And I, I suppose mm. that I love the fact that the film is underlaid with this economic um, disparity, which actually is more shocking than anything else. And you think you see these two characters, two main characters, who actually they seem opposite. They are definitely opposite in terms of um, socioeconomic status, but actually have share so much in common in the way that they're so distanced from human connection and they're kind of looking for something. They find it in this AI in different ways. Um, and I just thought that was quite a beautiful pairing between these two very different characters. Um, there's so much in this film to kind of unpick. It has this very, you were saying before about it being kind of a quiet film. I completely agree. It's got this strange quietness to it but has this like intensity behind it um I'm I'm really into this I, I thought it was an amazing amazing study of like human connection and intimacy um and that circular circular pain of grief I think that really um really resonated with me personally and I think just that yeah it's a lovely investigation of how we treat AI as as service and I love there's a lot of shots of her positioned her I keep saying her the AI positioned next to the dog or the cat and the way in which she acts as a, a servant to these people who are looking for connection. I thought that was really beautiful. Mm. Yeah, I I really was quite struck by this movie and um, I really feel like I took away the same uh, thing from it that you did, Flick. It really came through to me as being a movie about death and um, the grieving process. And also it was interesting to hear in um, that interview having Sandra talk about how with the AI in this film that it's not wanting to take over the world, it's, um, it just is. It's just what you tell it to do and that's what it is. And essentially that's what AI that we have available is. And that with these two halves that are in this movie, the essential thing that's coming through with looking for this AI that, is is human connection and that's what it seemed to me to be about was you know loss and human connection there um and it's a really elegant beautiful movie like stunning to look at and it is incredibly frustrating where these films that should be seen and um there's one very small part of it that is becoming the focus of this um you know of what everybody's talking about with this film, which isn't what the film is whatsoever. I remember um, having a conversation with uh, Julia Dicornu, who directed Raw, um, about her film and the way that that was being promoted. Uh, I think someone had passed out at a screening of it at TIFF or something <laughs> like that, or and there was, you know, a big, the same kind of media storm around it. And it's um, almost a badge of honour. Yeah, but she was saying that's not her film. That's <laughs> not what it's not. about. Yeah, and she said so. Therefore, people that are going to see this film are gorehounds, and they're going to they they're wanting to see an incredibly gory film. And she's like, 
that isn't my film. They're coming away disappointed. It's going to get bad reviews because mm. that's not what it is. So it really does these films a huge disservice when we we focus in on these one this one tiny element of it. And um, yeah, I think this is a really really remarkable film and so impressive that this is just yeah her second feature. Mm, Absolutely. Mm. Yes. So if you are interested in seeing The Trouble with Being Born, and I think that we all highly recommend that you do, it is currently screening at Lido, Classic Cinemas and Cinema Nova. You're listening to Primal Screen on Triple R. Independently yours, Triple R. 102.7. You're listening to Primal Screen on 3RRR with Flick Forward, Emma Westwood. Almost called you Emma Watson then. <laughs> Don't worry, I, I even got that wrong. I said Emily Watson in the interview. <laughs> if you were listening to it, and Emma's my name, how, how embarrassing is that? <laughs> To hunt the great white whale. Just call me Ahab. We're expecting great things. What is it the writer says? Tell the story you know. God bless William Randolph Hearst. 1930s Hollywood is reevaluated through the eyes of and scathing wit of alcoholic screenwriter Herman J. Mankiewicz but we are to call him Mank as he races to finish the script to the iconic Orson Welles film Citizen Kane. Mank is the latest offering from David Fincher and it stars Gary Oldman as Mank. This one has been pretty highly anticipated. Um, Flick, what did you think of Mank? Um, yeah, I've got a lot of thoughts about this film. So I've been, I've actually written notes to just keep my, keep myself on track. So I am a big, well, I start off in when I was studying film I was really obsessed with Fincher I I was thinking and it's kind of prompted me to reflect back on what it was when I was like 18 19 at first drew me into Fincher um yeah I've been reflecting a lot on his filmography so he he kind of has this obsession uh sorry this really keen interest in obsessed individuals like usually men so the like films like Fight Club Zodiac Seven there's kind of this idea that these obsessives who have so are kind of guided by this single ideology. Um, but he also has lots of really interesting female characters who have this same kind of methodical approach. Um, you know, characters like um, I've forgotten her main the main uh, character, but from Gone Girl and Girl with the Dragon Tattoo, with this like really single mindedness. Um, and also, like I suppose, a lot of his filmography kind of deals with competing narratives and um, these flashbacks. But the flashbacks are often like tainted by an unreliable memory or kind of an uncertain reality. Um, and he's always really drawn to like socially awkward characters and, and difficult characters. So it kind of makes total sense that Fincher would be like, "Yeah, I'm going to write about this kind of. I'm going to write about." film the history of film and also through this idea of screenwriters and forgotten screenwriters and this kind of um power play um so I was pretty excited to see this I have to be honest I was I was really geared up to watch it um I think that what I was kind of expecting is didn't quite connect up um of course this script is written by Jack Fincher David's um dad um and I think that there was something about um the weight of this story that kind of weighed really heavily on the script and this kind of reverence that I feel like maybe took away from the effectiveness and engaging storytelling that Fincher is usually so well known for, like all these really sharp edits or this clever sort of camera play. He, the, 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 on a technical level, the film is 
amazing. I really recommend it, people to see it on a big screen. Uh, it's really, really quite exceptional. Eric White was the colourist for this and his work on the shading and the lighting is just um, amazing. It's really phenomenal. It is. Um, yeah, and it's really okay. reminiscent of, of Citizen Kane. So it's this beautiful uh, visual homage to the, to the film. Um, they use these like low camera angles, deep focus, um, it's really amazing. It was shot with this like monochrome sensor that was specifically um, developed for Fincher back in 2012 and to make it look like old film stock. Like that level of detail is exceptional. It's what Fincher is kind of best known for. Um, my criticisms though. So I think that this is possibly, um, and this isn't maybe, this isn't a criticism. It's just, I think, a, a, a point. It's probably the most boring um fincher film um just comparing it to to films like panic room and fight club that have this really fast pacing um but i think that you know he has actually sort of started to lean towards more classical style since zodiac so it's not really a change i think he's maturing perhaps as a director so it's a real shift for people who liked maybe old school fincher um there's obviously a tremendous amount of research that's put into this film um and script particularly i think though that the the thing that happens is that lines end up to being delivered as though it's a, a kind of lecture, like a university lecture of like, did you know da 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 about early early Hollywood, like thirties Hollywood? Um, so I think that that's what pulls the script down. And, and apart from like Gary Oldman's amazing, I thought he was really well cast. He's always kind of great though. Um, and also Amanda Siegfried is um, she's she's wonderful. I think she's possibly the best thing about this film. She's just ca so charismatic on screen, and I really loved that they gave so much depth to her character. Um, but I feel like there's a lot of women in supporting roles, like Tuppence Middleton as Manx's wife or poor Sarah. Um, she's really given absolutely nothing to work with. Um, she spends, like, the whole film asking why she's with Manx and why she married him. Um, but she did do it well. She did do it well. <laughs> she did do it well. Yeah. <laughs> she is very good. <laughs> I mean, and then you've got Lily Collins as um, Manx typist Rita, Rita Alexander, and I just found her so boringly doting. I really I found real frustration with some of the other female characters in, in this film. Um I did one thing I really loved. I just just to kind of like go back to that. I really loved all of the um, labor disputes in the '30s. I was fascinated by that. Um, all the backroom haggling and like the local elections. That was wonderful. I really wanted to know more about that. I think overwhelmingly, um, I feel like it's really the script just dragged for me, and I feel like the pacing was a bit strange. The flashbacks didn't kind of work as well as they could have. Um, I think I just wanted, uh, I think it's that, you know, I'm chatting to Daniel James about this, who does the mission, and he was just like, this is what happens when people are given free reign on, on Netflix, and I, I do agree with him. So I think there's going to be a lot of people who love this. I think listeners who love, who really like film historians will, will enjoy this film immensely. Um, I, I I was one who loved it. Yeah. I absolutely loved it. <laughs> I was thinking it. you would, Emma. <laughs> I, did, I did love it, but I can see why people, I absolutely see why people wouldn't love it. But I love the fact that this was made, that it was, it's so bold and so courageous. And actually, um, Flick, you saying that you felt it was like a lecture on uh, cinema of that time, I, I didn't actually find that. I found that, if anything, it, it didn't um, probably isn't inviting to people who who don't know about that time or don't have an interest in in not just that time but Hollywood of that time and Citizen Kane. Like I would absolutely recommend if anyone's going to watch this film that they should watch Citizen Kane 
before they watch this film. But all the major players, you really have to have an idea of who they are and how they interlink to get stuff from this film. This film has so many little cookies, like, you know, it's a trail of cookie crumbles all through it. I missed probably two-thirds of them. I know they're there. That's why I need to watch it again and possibly again. I picked up a few of them, but the dialogue is rapid fire, which is very much the style of the 1930s yeah. cinema, which is, you know, super fast. Like I remember watching um, George Cukor's The Women with um, subtitling on and I couldn't read the subtitling fast enough for the, the dialogue. It was just flicking on the screen like that. And this film's very much like that. Incredibly beautiful and all of that, but it's going to just leave people at the door. If you don't have an interest in this, this film is not for you. Um, and there's going to be a lot of people who are going to see it on Netflix who are going to be like, what? What the hell is this? But I love it for that. <laughs> I do love it for that. And I think it's a film that you could... I would I would like to think it was something that people could pick at and it would um, maybe create an interest in people, but unfortunately I think it's going to go the other way. People are going to come to it because they know the subject matter and um, people are going to leave it at the door because they don't know the subject matter and it's not going to encourage them to see other films of the time, unfortunately. Mm. That that you're right about. Um, just one part of dialogue that was really impressive was the Maya's um party scene. I thought that was really that was a really great little um dialogue scene with yeah yeah. yeah. I liked a lot of it. Did you like the walk and talk with Louis B. Mayer as he's going along? That was incredible. That was my favorite scene of the film. I I I really I loved that. Great. (laughs) Yeah, it was shot so beautifully. I don't know how I feel about Mank, to be honest. Really? Yeah. yeah. I, that doesn't surprise me either, I, Sal. I um, <laughs> Everything about this, like, I, I mean, I do have an interest in um, in the golden age of Hollywood for sure and I'm familiar with who all of these people are and the film is incredibly beautiful. The dialogue's amazing. The performances are great. Um, it's shot beautifully, it's coloured incredibly, but I I still came away from it feeling underwhelmed and I I don't quite know why. Um, Yeah, I watched this on, I think, Saturday night and I've been really mulling over it going, what didn't work about this for me? Because everything about it should have and I was really excited to see it and I still can't figure out what has left me underwhelmed about this movie to I think it might be worth going back and looking at it again but yeah I don't know but I think I think it's a density of it um Sal I think it's um what I found if anything I managed I felt like I managed to dig into it but I kind Mm -hmm. of was slightly you know at times feeling like I was being pushed out of it. This is why I think this film will evolve even more in terms of the way I feel about it. But it's um it is it's terribly dense and it can push yep. you out of the out of the film experience, you know. The dialogue's so super snappy. It's almost mm too snappy for its own good yeah. <laughs> I don't know I don't know if it's the snappiest I think it was too much information in it like I think yep, they were too obviously leading you to like characters introducing other characters just so that the 
audience realised, but it just didn't flow. Like it wasn't natural. I don't know. That was my main. I, I really, I really hope the um the opposite to what you said, Emma. I really hope that people do seek this out because perhaps they're David Fincher fans and they're fans of his work, and you know they do stick with it, and it leads them to kind of look at me. I hope so, Sally. Yeah, I, I hope that as well. I do. I really hope so. But I think that they can't get dig into it if they could just maybe sit with it and just let those visuals wash over you because those um beautiful visuals of um you know the depth of field that you see in citizen kane that they replicate so gorgeously in this Mm -hmm. that would be you know just just sit with that i would say to people if they can't get any further into it well there could be a way in there's actually a lot of resonance with today i mean they've got the whole fake news stories yeah i thought that oh my god yeah there's a lot of i think there's a it's a very current film in a weird way like the timing is oh the hearst murdoch thing i actually watched citizen kane again before i watched it um a couple of weeks ago knowing that i was going to watch this and um, just even watching Citizen Kane and the parallels with the Fox News and the, the Murdoch empire is quite astounding. Mm. History repeats itself, people. <laughs> it does. <laughs> and if you're interested in watching Mank, it is now screening at uh, Lido and Classic Cinemas. Uh, and it's also streaming on Netflix. I watched this on Netflix and I kind of I wish I'd watched it in the cinema. So if you can get to a cinema and watch this, I recommend it. Um, you have been listening to Primal Screen on Triple R with Flick Ford, Emma Westwood and myself, Sally Christie. We had Emma interview director Sandra Walner and we discussed her latest film, The Trouble with Being Born, uh, which is screening at selected independent cinemas. And we also talked about David Fincher's latest offering, Mank, which is streaming on Netflix and screening at selected independent cinemas. Next week is our final show for 2020. What a year. And um, we've got a pretty special one in store. Our list master, Paul. Paul Anthony Nelson has been waiting all year for this episode. So um, we're going to be looking at our top 10 films of the year. So our individual top 10 movies and then our collective top movies. So Paul's busy putting this all together. We're also going to have a bit of a chat about our um, favourite retro discoveries that uh, we stumbled across this year in isolation. You can subscribe to the Primal Screen podcast via iTunes or wherever else you find your favourite podcasts. A special thanks to the wonderful Carl Chapman for panelling the show and also producing and Morty Osborne for taking care of our podcast. Thanks for listening to Primal Screen, a weekly radio show airing Monday evenings on Triple R. Hope you've enjoyed the podcast version and feel free to get in touch via the Primal Screen Facebook page or the Triple R website. 